Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Newcastle Chronicle and Yorkshire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, covering the North every day with an email newsletter that drops in your inbox just before lunchtime and brings you up to date with the latest political news from our region. All you need to do to sign up is visit www.thenorvanagenda.co.uk. And our two guests today will be talking about topics that we've covered extensively in recent days in the Northern Agenda. Edna Robinson, who chairs the People's Powerhouse Movement, tells us how ordinary Northerners really need to be given more of a say in the direction the region takes. The people of the North want to have their own say in their own government and their own governance. They also want to be able to raise more money locally. And as we know, you know, it's only 1% in the UK that gets raised locally. You know, we're just so far behind other countries in terms of people being able to control their own destiny. And with the government facing opposition from its own ranks over its cut price rail plans and social care reforms, one of Boris Johnson's loyalist Northern Tory MPs, Thurston Moulton's Kevin Hollenrake, tells our Westminster editor Dan O'Donoghue what the Prime Minister must do to get levelling up back on track. I'm here for the North. I've always said I was, I always will be, and I felt that was unfair. And effectively what it does then, it transfers about £900 million a year from those people in the North and the Midlands particularly, or people with more modest assets, into the health service. So I thought that was wrong. I thought that money needs to stay in the North and the Midlands in people's pockets to make it fair. And that's the reason I voted against it. And one of the topics we'll be asking Kevin about is a fascinating story on his patch in North Yorkshire, namely the picturesque village of Linton-on-Ouse. It seems crazy to think that in the middle of a housing crisis where so many people can't get on the housing ladder, there could be a place where more than 150 homes are currently completely empty. But that's precisely what's happened in Linton-on-Ouse. More than 150 homes have been left deserted after the RAF moved its operations out of the village's base in 2019, and a further 100 will become vacant over the coming year. It means that the locals who remain describe the place as resembling a ghost town. So to find out what's going on, let's speak to Christian Johnson, a reporter for Yorkshire Live who's been out to Linton-on-Ouse to speak to residents. Christian, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. No problem at all. So what is the deal here? Why have so many homes been standing vacant? for months on end in, in this village? Well, I think it's a village that has a really long tradition and a long sort of heritage with the RAF. Um, the base opened in 1937, but it was a back end of 2020. As you mentioned, the RAF moved out of that base in Linton-on-Ouse. And effectively, what's happened is there's, there's big houses, three-bedroom, four-bedroom houses that are standing empty. They are going to be occupied again, apparently, but for the time being, this has gone on for a while. It's gone on for throughout 2021. Uh, there's only a handful of people left on certain estates in the village. And a lot of people who are living there are saying that more needs to be done to get people into these houses quickly because there's still not really a timescale for when people are going to move back into these homes. And like, like you mentioned, you know, there's a housing shortage across the country in Yorkshire. And these are perfectly acceptable homes that, that will, be, will be brilliant for, for families all the way across the region. So you spent a bit of time in the village uh, recently. I, I'm imagining it's kind of a bit of an eerie place to spend time with so many empty properties. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, it's, it's a bit odd because as you drive into Linton-on-Ouse, it's a really quiet sort of picturesque um, North Yorkshire village. 
And as you drive down the main street, everything looks perfect. You know, you've got your post office on the right hand side. You've got your little village store on the left hand side. There's a there's a primary school at the far end as well. But just set back from that main road, there are two housing estates in particular, which are just completely barren, completely empty, pr- uh, pretty much apart from a few residents. So uh, one of the estates, I spoke to a guy, uh, Paul Gerrard, who moved there with his family because he said it was a perfect place for him and his family to live. You know, they've got jobs nearby. Uh, his daughter has got a job in the village shop. And they're now being forced to move out because the MOD want to transfer these homes back to Annington Homes, who who own them. But at the moment, nothing's being done with them. So there, there is a long-term plan for what's going to happen here. But certainly walking around these estates, one of the estates, there are four of 20 homes occupied. On another estate, there are even fewer homes uh, occupied. And it is a really bizarre situation. I walked around with uh, a few of the residents and there's an abandoned barbecue sort of stranded on a driveway. There's a basketball court in the middle of the estate, which is just sort of completely empty, covered in leaves. And it's just very, very strange. It is a really eerie place to visit, let alone to live in. And and certainly a couple of people I, I spoke to who live on these almost empty estates say it's just completely sort of ripped the life out of certain parts of the village. And, and, and people did use that phrase, a ghost town. It sounds almost post-apocalyptic, the, Absolutely. Uh, the, the what, what you're describing there with uh, empty basketball courts and barbecues strewn all over the place. It is the case, isn't it, that the majority of the houses that are empty, which were previously occupied, used to be occupied by RAF personnel who have moved out of the base. But there's also some private occupiers who are going to have to leave in the in the near future. Yeah, that's right. I think the majority of, well, the majority of RAF personnel have, have clearly moved out because the RAF have, have moved their operations away from there. But the guy I mentioned earlier, Paul Gerrard, who moved there with his family, he he's a private tenant. So he, he leases it or rents it off the MOD. He got a, a pretty good price for the, for the size of the house, uh, part of the reason why he moved there. But I think a real bone of contention is not only that lack of clarity about what's going on, but also people such as Paul, who's there with his family, has offered to buy the house. He wants to stay. He desperately wants to stay. His job's there. His family's there. He's settled. So he asked the MOD, how much? How much You know, is this house, house worth? And I'll see if I can put an offer in for it. And he said he was just blankly refused. He desperately wants to stay. There are other families, a handful, who, who do want to stay. But they've been told they've been told to get out. They've effectively been evicted from their homes. And they have until early next year to move out. And certainly in Paul's case, he's having to move around 30 miles away. So it's a big change for him. So it's not only the fact that the houses are empty. It's the people that are in the houses, the private tenants who want to stay, are being told that they can't. I know our guest on the podcast later, Kevin Hollenrake, has been lobbying the authority, so the MOD, I guess, to take action. What's been the response of the of, of the government to this? I think the MOD, effectively, the homes are they're owned by Annington Homes, so the MOD effectively leases them off Annington Homes. But there is just, as Kevin will say, I'm sure that there's just a lack of clarity and a lack of a timescale about when it's going to be done. We know these homes are going to be done up again to make them fit for use for families who do move in eventually. But it is just that sort of lack of any urgency, really. It might seem small fry to the MOD. You know, it's only a a couple of hundred homes in a a small North Yorkshire village. But to Linton-on-Ouse for an area with a population 
of just over a thousand people. This is having a massive impact, particularly on the school where pupil numbers have dropped, on the village shop as well. They're managing at the moment and they're, they're doing quite well, but they say the longer that this goes on, the more of an impact it will have. So the MOD have got plans in place for Linton on Ooze, but it's whether those plans are being carried out quickly enough and effectively enough. And certainly from local residents' point of view, that's not the case. As far as the future is concerned, we don't know exactly how long this ghost town sort of status could remain because we, we haven't got any clarity from the MOD or from, from Annington Homes, essentially. No, and I think before it gets better, it's going to get worse because those private tenants are going to be evicted in February and March next year. There are only a handful of them on these certain estates in the village, but they will be evicted which means that those estates will be completely empty, not just partially empty, but completely empty with no real timescale for when people can move in. Um, So the MOD have said that 50 houses will be transferred back to Annington Homes in February 22, but there's no timescale for when people can move in. And that's the real worry for people in the village. Well, thank you, Christian. You should read Christian's piece on the Yorkshire Live website about his visit to Linton on Ooze with a video about what exactly it's like there. It's a very odd situation. So let's hear more from local MP Kevin Hollenrake about what he thinks about this and some of the other big issues of the day. Wednesday, the government unveiled its long-awaited white paper on social care. Care groups and charities welcomed the 10-year vision, but said more funding was urgently needed now to pull the sector back from the brink. With me to discuss the plan and much more is Thirsk and Moulton MP Kevin Hollenrake. Kevin, welcome. Yeah, hi. Nice to be with you. Now, one of your colleagues, former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt, said the White Paper took three steps forward and and two steps back. Is this, as Boris Johnson promised, a plan to fix social care once and for all? Well, yes, it is. But of course, the devil's always in the detail. And there are concerns, understandable concerns, um, a couple of which I think is what Jeremy Hunt is referring to. The social care levy, health and social care levy, raises about £12 billion a year, which is enough to fund the extra demands of social care. I think, as Jeremy Hunt said yesterday, that's about £7 billion they reckon they needed from his health select committee. But what's happening because of the backlog in healthcare, because of COVID, a lot of that money initially is going to be moved into the NHS to try and, uh, to try and deal with that backlog of urgent cases, um, so things like cancer treatments and the like, thing, elective operations, all those kind of things that we've seen a big backlog developing in the NHS. So there are concerns in the short term that there won't be enough money, and I share those concerns. I also share some concerns about the way the cap works and the means testing of the cap, work, cap works, because really the means test doesn't help lots of people of more modest means. So if you've got, in asset terms, less than probably £200,000 and you go into a care home, then your home really, your own home, is really at risk in terms of having to sell that to pay for your care. Now, there's a big backlash against that, obviously, and you yourself kind of spoke out against it in the Commons. You're someone who's often described as, as quite a loyalist MP. I mean, what kind of drove you to, to kind of rebel on this occasion? Well, I honestly think, I mean, lots of the things the government did were more generous than previously been laid out in terms of the scheme. And we legislated for the scheme in 2014. And to be fair to this government, nobody's actually brought forward a solution before to solve the problems of social care. This government has. Um, we legislated in 2014, 
I wasn't here at the time. I wasn't a parliamentarian then. But um, this, and lots of the things the government did were more generous than 20, the 2014 plan. But one thing that was less generous was that means testing. Uh, so previously, the means test meant that the, the government candidate or the taxpayer kind of shared the cost of your uh, the social care cap. Everybody has a cap of £86,000. But people with assets of less than £200,000, the government kind of shared uh, that the cost of your of your eighty six thousand pounds, so it it really was a, a like a lower cap for people on more modest means, which is and most of those people in the, are in the north and in the Midlands, for example. I'm here for the north. I've always said I was. I always will be, and I felt that was unfair. And effectively, what it does then it transfers about nine hundred million pounds a year from those people in the north and the Midlands, particularly or people with more modest assets, into the health service. So I thought that was wrong. I thought that money needs to stay in the north and the Midlands in people's pockets to make it fair. And that's the reason I voted against it. I mean, it's been a bit of a bruising couple of weeks in the north, I think. I mean, I'm thinking of now the row over HS2 and Northern Powerhouse Rail as well. All this taken together, has the government's levelling up programme gone off track a bit? Well, um, I I don't think it's fair to say it's off track, but it's not as generous as, as we were led to believe it would be. I think it's fair to say. And um, so the government's made this kind of unprecedented commitment to spend much more money in the North, and it's doing that. I mean, it's £640 billion of spending across the country by 2025, 2024, and they changed something called the Green Book, which is the methodology of how the Treasury allocates where that spend goes to make it'll be much more money in the North and the Midlands. So that's all really good. Um what the government did when it announced its integrated rail plan, there were some things that we expected to happen, such as the eastern leg of HS2, that runs from Birmingham to Leeds to be fully uh, completed, and this northern powerhouse rail, which is supposed to be, uh, we thought, was going to be a completely new railway line between Leeds through Bradford to Manchester, which would have had all kind of capacity improvements and speed improvements, which would have been good for all those three cities and the wider north. Uh, and those plans were reined back. So it's still £96 billion, it's still a lot of taxpayers' money, but I think that's a false economy, which is why I've spoken out against it and asked the government to think again. So uh, so I think we've got to be careful. You know, the, the, the scale of levelling up is huge. The economic disparity in output per capita, so the size of our economies per capita, and the differential between the northeast and London and the southeast in relative terms is as wide as it was between East and West Germany, prior to reunification. Now, that took 30 years and $2 trillion to narrow that gap. And we've got to be prepared to be in this for the long haul, but also to make sure we invest the right money in the right places. So it was my view, you know, that's that's a misstep on the way to levelling up. The uh, levelling up secretary, Michael Gove, in the House earlier this week, he kind of acknowledged the disappointment felt, particularly across certain northern towns and, and cities. And he hinted at possibly more funding for transport, more investment in projects in the future. Perhaps he was hinting at the forthcoming levelling up white paper there. I mean, I don't know if there's kind of a wish list that, that, that you've got or what kind of things you would like to see in that white paper to perhaps, you know, heal the wounds a little bit over the last couple of weeks and some of the missed opportunities. I don't think we should, we've, we're beaten yet in terms of the social care, with the way the cap works, or in terms of Northern Powerhouse Rail. I've got to say, I think the eastern leg of HS2 is less of an issue for me than Northern Powerhouse Rail. 
east-west journeys are more important than north-south in my view. Um, so I think we should still keep fighting the good fight on that. And you know, I think we could make the argument another three billion quid on top of what's already been committed will complete that Northern Paris Rail. So I think we should look for that. Um, but it's not the whole story. Connectivity isn't the only thing. We also need skills. We also need private sector investment. We also need community projects. And that's what I hope we'll get from the white paper. Lots of things like that, lots more money. The government's already committed four billion quid into these kind of leveling up projects through the community ownership fund, community renewal fund, and the like. So, which is great. And lots of communities are already benefiting from those allocations of money. So, uh, more of those, uh, but improved skills, improved private sector investment, and improved connectivity. All those things need to come together to properly level up. We're speaking today, Kevin, just ahead of your uh, important Commons debate on economic crime. I just wondered if you could tell our listeners what you will be focusing on in that debate. Yeah, I'm, I'm focusing on the fact that you know, we can clamp down on economic crime. You know, it's, uh, it's such a devastating thing. If you look at all the small boats in the channel, the reason that is happening is actually, of course, people are desperate to go across continents, to come to the UK for various reasons, some fleeing persecution, some for economic reasons. But they could not do that if they were not facilitated by people traffickers. And those people traffickers are not do-gooders who are helping people go to a better life. They are, they are gangsters. They are organised criminals. And they wouldn't be, there was no point in doing that stuff if they can't spend the money that they're, they're ill-gotten gains. And you you know, okay, if you nick 200 quid, you can go and spend it down the pub. If you nick, if you effectively earn millions of pounds, which these people are doing, you want to do nice things with it. You want to buy a house, you want to buy a boat, you want to live a wonderful lifestyle. Well, you try and do that, and the people you're going to spend the money with say, where you get that money from? That's that's where the law is. But so what these people do is they divert this money, they salt this money away through various different mechanisms. And as the head of Interpol recently said, you know, if we want to, if we want to uh, crack down on these people, we've got to follow the money. Well, the trouble is in the UK, it's very difficult to follow the money because our rules are still quite lax. So you can set a company up in the UK, £12, no questions asked. You can buy a property in the UK, uh, overseas through a company, very few questions asked. And, and some of our banks are complicit in this, and lawyers and accountants and they will help you launder this money, and there aren't proper sanctions, so the serious fraud office can hold these people to account. This is what we need to clamp down on those people who, these effectively organised criminals, who facilitate this evil trade. And you can say the same for terrorism, you can say the same for drug dealing, you can say, say the same for these uh, despots, kleptocrats, who run these developing nations that we put money into, and they're putting money out the back door, and then siphoning it through uh, some of these channels including in the UK. So that's what I'm saying, and I'm just urging the government to crack down on these routes uh, and these opportunities much more severely. And finally, I just wanted to uh, ask you about this rather bizarre story coming from uh, Linton on Ooze, where I'm told it's become a bit of a ghost town. I just wondered if you could uh, enlighten us as to, to what's been happening there. Yeah, well, I mean, Linton on Ooze is, is a fantastic village, and it's, as everybody locally knows, it's played host to a fantastic airbase that's had a proud history in terms of including you know, fight, fighting the Nazis in the Second World War. Just some wonderful stories of um, uh, uh, bravery and bravado uh, uh, out of that base. So really proud history. But the base, sadly, is closing, has been on the cards for some time. And, um, and so the, the village itself, of course, lots of service families used to use the shop, use the pub, use the school. All those people have moved away and now 
So all those those houses on the base and just outside the base, there's 168 of them, are pretty much empty now. So we want to have those houses released back into the community, back for sale or to rent. New families moving in, that could be 168 families, probably 50 kids of primary school age could be could be going to Linton School tomorrow. And the school, the roll numbers at the school have gone down from about 120 down to about 60. So it puts the existence of the school under threat. So we want those properties released back into the community to make them usefully available again very quickly. And we're working on that with the government and Annington Homes who are effectively the landlord. And have you had kind of any positive noises back from the MOD over this, or is it still just just in the process? Yes, but they've been they've been slow, and it's a big organisation, and the government wheels move pretty slowly. And we we were we're giving them the hurry up basically, get on with it. These these properties are empty now. Annington want them back. Annington have promised to turn them around really quickly, probably within about three months. So there should be fifty odd properties come back into Annington to the landlord in February. I'll take three or four months to turn around. So we think probably June, July time, they should be on the market, which will be great. Families moving in, kids going to the school. So we just want to make sure that happens as quickly as possible. Now, there's no shortage of people with opinions about the North as a region and its politics, particularly now it's seen as crucial to the prospects of Boris Johnson getting back into power at the next election. But how often do we take in the views of people who live and work in the North rather than those in the corridors of power? That's precisely the mission of the People's Powerhouse, a movement that aims to bring Northerners together so they can decide what the future of the North should look like for themselves. And last week, as you may have read in the Northern Agenda's daily newsletter, the group held a very successful online convention where it had representatives from local community groups, as well as Northern politicians, metro mayors and leading thinkers to debate the direction the North needs to go in. So let's hear a bit more about the People's Powerhouse from its chair, Edna Robinson. Edna, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. It's good to have you on. So why don't you just tell us a bit before we get into talking about the convention, about where the People's Powerhouse came from as a, as a concept. What, was, what, what, what kind of organisation is it and, wh- and where, did it, where did it stem from? Uh, it started as a protest uh, and it's morphed into other stuff, which we can talk about in a few moments. But it started as a protest uh, against the lack of diversity in the Northern Powerhouse construct. First of all, a construct that was constructed without any permission or asking by a group of leaders within the North. And secondly, a group of leaders who were all male. And so there was a um, a few pictures of the Northern Powerhouse uh, people coming together. And my many of my peers um, just tweeted each other and went, oh, you know, where, where's the diversity? Where's the fairness and all this? Who are these people who said that they should suddenly represent the views of the North? And so... That's how it was formed. And it was literally on Twitter. And people got together a couple of months later in Doncaster, um, Andy Burnham and a few of the other local politicians, many council leaders all got behind it. Many chief executives in local authorities got behind it. And so they had a convention at Miliband, a few other people came along and the People's Powerhouse was kind of formed at that kind of protest meeting where people were just saying, you know, there needs to be a far broader 
a more interesting vision for the North. To fast forward to last week, obviously it was your fifth annual convention, I think. And uh, I mean, the list of people that you had speaking was great, but obviously very, uh, you know, in keeping with what you've just been saying, it was very diverse. It wasn't just politicians, but there was a lot of sort of other people as well with quite diverse viewpoints and sort of experiences. Yeah, and and I think that that, you've hit the nail on the head there, Rob, because it's actually about experience, not just expertise. And we do love an expert, don't we? And so most conventions and conferences are built on the idea that this is an intellectual hierarchy. You have people on the platform who have the knowledge, and then you have the listeners in the audience. Well, we've really turned that on its head, and we believe that all people's experiences leads to expertise and we have to value them. So we've tried to, first of all, say it's a convention, not a conference. It's also people can do go into listening mode as much as into talking mode. So we're just trying to unpick some of the sense of hierarchy that exists in how we make our decisions and, in fact, how we even have conversations. And so we formed a network and a platform rather than an institution. I know that a large part of your aim is to sort of get people in power to listen to the views of of, of the north of ordinary folk in, in the north. How do you go about how do you go about doing that? How do you sort of make your views and those of, you know, people who contribute to the people's powerhouse heard in the the national conversation about the north of England? We've struggled to do that, and in some ways we're kind of proud of that because we've stayed true to our identity, which is if you don't want to invite us, then we're probably not going to come along. And uh, we want to feel that people are very open to being influenced, and that is really tricky. We know that most decisions are made through positional authority. So if you've got the right job, you get invited to the right thing and you, you help to influence. So we've tried to keep true to um, ordinariness and people who have got ordinary things to say. And we've also a bit journalistic-esque, as in if there's an issue that's really important, we will inquire more about it and we'll get those people to talk more about it and we'll give them a platform. And so when the last uh, face-to-face Northern Convention happened, we actually took Berry Football Club with us. You know, so because that was, Berry Football Club was about to go into administration and the people of Berry were in a lot of pain and there was a lot of stuff there. So that's an example of where we went along with just a group of people who wanted to get their voice heard rather than went along in our own right. Do you feel that the concerns that you were raising and you know and the people who who started the people's powerhouse a few years ago those concerns about only certain types of people talking about these issues sort of being heard prominently and it being only a relatively small range of topics that sort of came up for discussion has has that situation improved do you think or are we still or has it not gone as far as you would as you would like i think i think both i think it's uh, it has improved i think people are more aware of the lack of diversity Uh, and so and you know that sadly can become called political correctness which is again what you find is when you talk about fairness and decency people who are not really interested in that as an agenda will deride it 
and they'll label it in some way that allows people to say, oh, well, you know, we don't really need to be concerned about that because it's actually just a trend. And of course, we saw that far more recently with taking the knee. And until we got Gareth Southgate to actually calm the whole thing down, it was an anti-racism movement that was actually gaining more momentum than the actual uh, Black Lives Matter messages. So we kind of, you know, we recognize that if you continue to remind people, you become wearisome. So we kind of, we want it to be implicit in what we do, that we are fair and we're decent and we'll have to try and get the right people in the room. We're not about judging, uh, but we are about showing best practice if we can. At your convention last week, you had a, a lot of interesting people speaking. I mean, in terms of the stuff that I picked up on from watching it, I was particularly interested in Michael Marmot, his landmark review into inequalities in uh, ten, 10 years ago. And then he did another one last year about the you know health inequalities in this country and the impact that's having on people's life expectancy and their and their outcomes. And he had some some fascinating stuff to say, didn't he, about how you know we actually make change happen in 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 this sphere and it's all very well getting politicians on board but actually you need a broader coalition to make to to make change happen yeah i mean it's my stock in trade i spent my life in the nhs and i've seen health inequalities get worse not better so it's a great tragedy that so many people are missing out on their life chances And health inequality is not about illness, it's about life chances and not having the energy or the right, being the right place to be able to make the most of your life and your career and your family and your relationships and your talents. And so it absolutely is. He's, I mean, he's amazing. And what we loved about his session was how relaxed he was. And he was able to have a bit of fun with us and he was able to talk about his fantasy and so on. And we got this lovely human side of this very, very, very clever person. And people, the feedback was we saw, you know, we saw the real person. And and that sense of humanity and decency again was what people took away as much as the clever scientist that he is, the clever academic that he is. And so... People feel they can then relate and be part of something and they don't feel, oh, well, I'm not as clever as him because I'm not on that big platform. And therefore, I maybe do have a contribution to make and I can have a regular conversation with this guy and maybe I can join in and be part of something that actually can be a significant movement for change. And watch this space, Rob, because we're coming back on that one. We've absolutely loads of ideas of what we're going to do with with him. And the other one that I watched or listened to with interest, you had Kim Ledbeater, the MP for Batley in Spain, talking with Aru Shah, the new leader of Oldham Council, about diversity in leadership. And they both had some interesting things to say. And I thought Aru Shah was particularly interesting talking about the obstacles that she has had to overcome to reach the, the elected position that she has and some of the experiences she's had with prejudice and, and racism in, in sort of becoming the leader of Oldham Council. And I guess what that means in terms of what we have to do as a country to enable a more diverse range of people to take leadership roles. I mean, what, what, did, you, what did you glean from that, from that talk? Well, first of all, I was hugely honoured that she felt safe enough to say what she said. I think it is a testament to us that we are a safe place 
and that we're not judgmental, that we're not trying to get a story out of people. We are wanting people to feel genuinely that they can share their whole self, not just their public persona. And so I, you know, hats off to her completely. She was amazing in terms of some of that, those disclosures. But wasn't it great that our politicians can feel like that, that they can show some vulnerability and not feel there's going to be a hideous pylon of people going, you know, the counter narrative about weakness or self-indulgence or whatever horribleness people could come up with. And people like um, Kim and Nazia, who, you know, who did the, uh, the interviewing, those are people who work pro bono with us in the powerhouse. They spend a lot of time helping to create this, this counter narrative that is about lack of hierarchy and openness to try and solve some of our problems. So, oh, it was, it was fabulous. And yeah, just very, very, very pleased, pleased with the feedback, but more importantly, you know, she's a, she's going to be a great friend to the powerhouse and we're, we're very excited to work with her in the coming year. And the, the final talk that I, I listened to with great interest was the, the five Labour Northern Metro mayors who gathered together, which is you know actually becoming a, a relatively frequent occurrence now that they sort of speak with one voice. But the main takeaway that I took from that was them talking about how, you know, in, in their dealings with central government, they often feel like their efforts in going down to London and asking for whatever doesn't tend to yield that much of a reward. And actually what they find is working better is if they take the initiative for themselves in their own local area. So, you know, in Greater Manchester, the Homelessness Action Network or in in West Yorkshire, the, uh, you know, the free bus Sunday scheme to try and get people on the buses and that those, you know, taking power, the North taking power for itself where it's able to is a more effective way of making change than going cap in hand to Whitehall. I mean, was that your was that your impression as well? Yeah, and and we've seen them uh, grow in in terms of both connectivity and confidence during the past few years. And they again, they've been really good friends to us. And important to put on record that all the mayors were invited. We're trying not to be party political. We have got a particular. Uh, swathe of leaders who are, you know, in one particular party, but that's we're trying to stay in the middle of the debate. So it's you know, it's not. Um, we're, we're just trying to make it a welcoming place uh, for everyone. So no, absolutely thrilled. I think our position, Rob, though, is that we are looking for a democratic settlement for the North. It, there needs to be. a conversation about Northern leadership that isn't just about the deals that each of them have to strike in order to get a mayoral position or a deal with central government. And some of those have been incredibly successful because it meant additional resources coming into the North that wouldn't have come our way. But surely we need to get way beyond this business of bargaining because the people of the North want to have their own say in their own government and their own governance. They also want to be able to raise more money locally. And as we know, you know, it's only 1% in the UK that gets raised locally. You know, we're just so far behind other countries in terms of people being able to control their own destiny. And if we do link it to what we said earlier about Michael Marmot and so forth, it's not as though it is such a cozy and comfortable picture here. There is a lot to do. 
there is a lot of hardship and there are a lot of people who are vulnerable. And again, you know, we don't want to be talking negatively about the North, talking about it in pejorative language, about it being deprived and all that kind of stuff. But equally, there are some serious challenges that our mayors are wanting to address and we need a better infrastructure for them and a better infrastructure for the places in the North that haven't got a mayor at all. And in terms of what the People's Powerhouse is going to be talking about and doing in the next few months, in the next year, what what kind of uh, issues might we be hearing uh, from you about? I think it's really important to recognise that, you know, we don't cover everything and we can't cover everything. We didn't in the convention. And particularly um, all the uh, stuff around social care, which has emerged, which is, you know, is a real issue. We didn't, we haven't covered it. We will be looking at whether we cover that in the next 12 months and how we get people's voices. There are an amazing number of organizations and systems out there. And again, we're not about duplicating. Or, so we will provide a platform around social care, probably not ourselves, but get loads of people together. And I think, as I said at the start, this whole idea of getting people in the room to listen as opposed to do the hierarchy of talking and sitting on a platform. The other thing to say is it's got to be free because most of the pan-Northern stuff, you have to pay a significant sum of money to even get in the room. So what we have to do is stay free to air so that people can actually air their voices. So something around social care, um, something around small businesses, we've actually got um, a good small business network, but we haven't talked about it enough. Um, and, you, you know, looking at British Asians across the north who have done amazing stuff in terms of small business community. So we want to dig deeper into that um, diversity in the small business community. We've had a big event on climate change and we probably now need to come back on that. But most importantly, Rob, what will we be doing? We'll be doing what we do best, which is customer care, back of office, contacting people when they don't expect us to. How you know? Do you fancy a quick cuppa on Zoom? How are you doing? Anything happening in your area? We've just got a big geographical energy in Cumbria that we're going to be looking at over the next few months about getting uh, people together there. So we are. We want to be trusted. We want to be respected and we're not going away. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. See you next week.